So we're in Genesis chapter 1, and in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over every over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we began this weekend being asked to rethink how we think. Being asked to once again consider God. The God who has revealed himself as triune in his word. The God who has sprinkled trinities all throughout his creation as a reminder, as an exaltation of the reality of the God that is love. The God that creates because of his love. The God that saves to demonstrate that love. A God that speaks. Then God said. Understanding why those three words are important, that's the basis for this sermon. Then God said. Saints, words have meaning. And we fail to often think of that as we, split, as we speak flippantly. Even though we're told that life and death are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18.21, words have meaning. And our words should be chosen wisely, since we're told in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, that we will be responsible for every careless word that people speak. They will be given, they will have to give an account for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, or by your words you will be condemned. And the reason that words matter, the reason that why our words matter, the reason that the things that we say, the meaning behind the words that we use, why they matter is found in what God said in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, My desire for you is to be amazed at the God that said. It's my aim this morning to try to unpack the richness found within that one verse, Genesis 1.26, why that one verse actually matters. How that one verse reveals the very nature of the God that said. It's my hope to show you, to demonstrate to you through Scripture, the wonder of the God as He has demonstrated Himself to be in His Word. To marvel at the complex and completely holy nature of the God that created us in His image. But before we can truly grasp how important being created in His image is, and then think through why He created us in His image, we should first think about what it was that God said before He said, let us create them in our image. Before, before verse 26, God, the God that said, had already spoken. Genesis 1.1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that single verse, that is the synopsis of all things. That verse encompasses 
everything that has ever been created, all the way to the last thing that will ever come about prior to recreation. That single verse is the why of all things. Why is there something instead of nothing? Because in the beginning, God created. But how did He create? The reason, the how that He created, that's simply amazing. He created the heavens and the earth, and then in verse 2 we're told, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We're told in verse 2 that the God that created now was working within and with Himself in creation. He had created the heavens and the earth. The building blocks of creation had been formed. They were as if it were a masterful created symphony orchestra, poised, eagerly waiting the command of the master conductor to direct them into fulfilling his masterpiece of symphony. They were sitting there, silently poised, eagerly looking to God the Spirit, waiting for Him to move His hand, which would then bring them into action, condemn, condemn, command them to, bring, to begin playing. And then we're given verse 3. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. His will was given. And it was made manifest, not in a movement, but in a spoken word, he spoke. And in speaking, he revealed the Trinitarian nature of himself. You see, if God was a single being, he would never have spoken. Who would he have spoken to prior to creation? Why would he ever need to speak? He would be alone. If he were truly God and alone, he wouldn't need anything else. He was complete within himself. He wasn't lonely, but he spoke, thereby demonstrating that he is more than one being. He communicated prior to creation. And even though God the Father and the Spirit are both spiritual beings, and we're told that Christ took on flesh, meaning that he was a spiritual being, being as well, even though God is spirit, he still chose to, and he still communicated through spoken words. Listen how the letter that God communicated to us humans, the one that we know of as Hebrews, how it opens, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 1. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. In verse 1, the writer tells us that it was speaking. That was God's chosen method of communicating. And He gives us a hint at the importance of being created in His image, when in verse 2 He tells us that in these last days, which are all the days from the advent of Christ forward, that His perfect chosen method of speaking was found in his son. And then we're once again confronted with the reality of the triune nature of our God. God created, the Spirit was hovering, 
And now we are told that God created through his son, who he appointed heir. But that sounds a lot like God is not one. It sounds like we're talking about at least two or more separate beings here. But then verse 3 of Hebrews 1 speaks. And when it does, in the first half of that verse, we see that God is one. Hebrews 1, 3, who is the radiance, speaking of Christ, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ is the exact representation of his nature. And again, words matter. Not exact representation of his likeness. Because if he was the exact representation of his likeness, then the son could be separate from the father. He could be like the child that looks just like his dad. But this is not what we're told. He is the exact representation of his nature. Well, what is the nature of the father? The nature of God, of the father, can be summed up in his attributes. Each of them are fully God, and he is fully each of them. And when he was asked to reveal himself in the fullness of his glory, he did so. Do you remember how? By speaking. Listen to that account given to us in Exodus 33. God was speaking face to face with Moses already. We know that because of verse 11 of Exodus 33. But that wasn't enough for Moses. He wanted to know the true nature of God. He wanted to know God more intimately. So Moses says, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Verse 20. God said, Again, his nature is bound up in his name, Yahweh. And then he describes the essence of his nature in words. He says he's gracious and that he's full of grace and that he will extend his grace to whom he desires and his compassion on those whom he desires. And that's a hint at the importance of why Genesis 1.16 is important, us being created in his image. And then in Exodus chapter 34, we are told of God passing in front of Moses once again. This time, Moses isn't hid in the cliff of a rock. We're told in verses 4 through 7 of Exodus 34, So he carved out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as Yahweh had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hands. And then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. And then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abiding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So did you hear how God spoke of himself in verse 6? He said, Yahweh, God. Yahweh, plural. God, singular. And this is his essence. 
This is who he is. This is his I amness. This is the exact representation of his nature as told to us in Hebrews 1.3. And don't overlook the nature of God as told to us twice in Exodus. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, he was told that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and their grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And here once again is the importance of Genesis 1.26 is being spoken of here when God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But what is this son that is the exact representation of his nature according to Hebrews 3? Hebrews 1.3. What does Hebrews 1.3 say that he is? It says that he's the radiance of his glory. Well, what does that mean? It means that he is that that we are, tr- are told in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. When we're told that Christ is in the beginning. He was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. And it was this God, the light, the exact representation of the nature of God, it was He that commanded the elements in Genesis 1-3. And they, in perfect unison, obeyed. And the first thing that He created was light. Genesis 1-4. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. The first thing that God created, He did so as a symbol. And as an illusion in order that we can know things about Him. Because God created light, we can understand darkness. Because of Genesis 1-4, we can understand that truth about God as told to us in John chapter 1-5. It's been proven that there is no such thing as darkness. There's only an absence of light. And this is why darkness hovered over the deep in verse 2. Without God speaking in verse 3, all that we would ever know is darkness. And if that were the case, God would still be holy, holy, holy. The absence of light would do nothing to taint or diminish his holy nature. But there was a reason for creation, a reason for all that is. He created the heavens and the earth, and it was formless and void. And then he spoke. And as I mentioned before in that opening sentence, God reveals the Trinitarian nature, the essence of all things, when we are told in the beginning, which speaks of time, Time is a construct that God created. And God is not relegated by time. He's outside of time. He's the God of time. But time is a tool that he created in order that we can know him. 
He was before the past. And he is after the future. And he is sovereign over our now. And he created time when he said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. One day. Genesis 1, 3-5. And that, for us, is the beginning of time. We're told in Lamentations 3 that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. That speaks of time. So does the truth of Hebrews 13.8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God created time for a reason. He created time in order that we can know Him. But how does time allow us to know God? Time is the framework in which he has chosen to build the means that he is shown as most glorious. Time is the means by which we can understand the faithfulness of God, that he is faithful. Time is the means that we know how much he has grown us how much he has formed us more to be into the image of his son. It's through the context of time that we can grasp the effects of sin on our bodies. Without time, without us being able to comprehend time, we wouldn't know that we are growing, or getting older, or aging, or dying. It's in time, it's by time, that we are able to understand beginning and end. It's because of time that we can make sense of the seasons. It's because of time that we can number our days. Without time, we would just be a dumb animal that would always be living in the eternal now. We would always be in this moment. We couldn't truly learn we truly could not experience, and we couldn't know. And God created time in order that we could, in order that he would be glorified in us by us knowing the reality of the God that is faithful, the God that has created time. But understanding who God is faithful to is important. In Numbers 23:19, we're told, this concerning God. God is not man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will it not be established? There, his absolute faithfulness is spoken of. What he says there is that he keeps his promises. But there's an issue that we should actually be thinking about. God says that he keeps his promises, but remember what God said of himself back in those Exodus verses when Moses asked him to see his nature, his glory. He said, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. 
yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And this is the nature of Jesus Christ, the one that is the exact representation of God. He's faithful, and he never wavers in keeping his promises. And we are told of the faithfulness of God in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness with thousands of generations, with those who love him and keep his commandments. But verse 10, but repays those who hate him to their faces to make them perish. And he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. There's the conundrum in God. Because God has been faithful to uphold all that he has created. And he created all that we know. This is the reality that is spoken of prior to the sixth day of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And he looked at all that he had created. And he proclaimed it was good. Six times he proclaimed it was good. His creation was good. And that means not just good, but that it means it was perfect. It was complete within itself. It was perfect in form and function. And all of this came from the overflow of the love that is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that all created through, through the specifically chosen means of creation. And God said and then on the sixth day god spoke once again genesis 1 26 through 31 then god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness and again the trinitarian nature that is god is once again and once again being highlighted here whatever this man is that he created. All three members of the, of the Trinity are actively involved in the decision to make it. And he, God, they, they did so for a reason. They did so, so that they, man, will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. God created man as an extension of himself. He created man as vice-regent over his good creation. Man was given dominion over all things, with the exception of God himself. And then in verse 27 we are told, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And here... The difference between Christ and Adam is being emphasized to us. Christ was before creation. Christ was the creator. Again, he's the exact representation of the nature of God. Adam was created by God in his image as co-regent. And Adam was created relationally, meaning that he was made with the ability to create life within himself. As Eve said later, with the help of God, Genesis 
And then we're told in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. God spoke to nothing and everything came into being in verse 1. And here in verse 28, he spoke to dirt, which he had fashioned into Adam, breathed his spirit into him, thereby making him in his image. And then God spoke to Adam. And this is the benefit of being made in the image of God. We were created by God in order that we can know God and have relationship with God. And we were created truly king of the world, as we're told in verse 28. And then he reiterates this again to us in verse 29, when God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. The command given to Adam to have dominion was not only given to him as a commandment, but it was also an enablement. Adam did have dominion. And Adam knew that he was created. He knew that he had been created alone. God made sure that Adam understood that he was not creator, that he wasn't the man. Adam, unlike God, was lonely. And God made sure that Adam knew that. And then God created Eve out of Adam. Again, demonstrating to them both that he is God and that they are not. That they were just merely co-regents. They were king and queen of the world. It was all for them to use, all for them to enjoy, all for them to use and enjoy for one reason, in order that they could bask in the glory of the joy of God. And it was in this context that we were given verse 31 of Genesis 1. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then we're confronted with the reason behind the reason for creation. As John Piper has rightfully said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. But this was not the state that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the morning with God with. Wait, David. Wait, wait, wait a minute, David. Or did you just say that they didn't have an intimate relationship with the God that spoke them into being? Is that what you just said, David? That's not what I said. They did have a relationship, an intimate relationship with God, but not completely. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on with me for this one. Because just as Moses, as with Moses, Adam saw God face to face. And we know that no one has ever seen God and lived. We know that the Father is spirit, and the spirit is spirit. 
okay? By way of deduction, who then leaves that the atom was walking in the cool of the day with? Who was it that Adam looked in the eye and told him, and, and when he told Adam, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat you will surely die, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Who was it that told Adam that? It was Christ. It was Jesus. Jesus is the one that Adam looked at, looked at in the eye and thought, nah, I think equality with you is something that I should be grasping after. And he sinned when he acted upon that thought by disobeying that command. And when he did, God was faithful. He surely died. He, in that instance, made all that had been good no longer good. He did at that moment what we're told in Romans 8.20, when, when creation was subjected to futility. I want to posit that word, though, because it's a great descriptor of the nature of Adam and his sin, and our sin. His life was futile. And if you're searching in your head, trying to think of what does futile mean? What is a good definition of that word futile? What that means is that Adam's life and all of creation was pointless, useless. That's what futility means. And was it Adam that subjected creation to futility? Did Adam do that? What does the Word of God say? The rest of Romans 8, verse 20 says, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. God did this. Adam sinned, and yet God subjected all creation to fertility because Adam was created in the image of God, and he was co-regent with God. He had been given dominion over all creation. So when Adam acted in less than a perfect manner, everything under his dominion was then rendered useless, pointless. But not truly. Because verse 20 of Romans 8 goes on to say that when God subjected creation to futility, it was done in hope. And those are the last two words of verse 20 of Romans 8. And then verse 21 of Romans 8 tells us what that hope is. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. And the last bit of verse 21 of Romans 8 there then tells us of the hope that creation waits for. Why its futility is not truly futile. The hope that is spoken of in verse 20. That's not wishful thinking of those Las Vegas Raiders fans. The ones that hope that someday they will actually have a good football team. The hope that is being spoken of here in the Bible is not that type of hope. Hope in the Bible is defined for us in places such as Hebrews 6, 11. When the writer there says, We desire that each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize 
the full assurance of hope until the end. The hope of the Bible, the hope that creation has, that's the full assurance that it will be set free from its slavery to corruption. The question we have to ask, though, is why? Why would God allow Adam to fall from the perfect state that he was made in? Why would God subject all of creation to slavery, of corruption, to futility, which is what Adam did when he sinned? And that all goes back to those three words. Then God said. God created out of the overflow of the love that is the Trinity. God created in order that the greatest, ma- the greatest amount of his glory could be demonstrated in the spiritual realm. He created in order that Adam, who walked in the cool of the day with him, could bring him the greatest amount of glory. How? So do you remember that saying that I quoted to you, the one by John Piper? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. John Piper used a couple of verses from the Bible alongside of the musings on the Psalms by C.S. Lewis along with those two things and the desire in his own heart to formulate that saying. He looked at what the psalmist said of God in places such as Psalm 1611, where we're told, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Listen, listen to you as I read, or listen as I read to you Psalm 8 and the majesty and the wonder of your God. Listen to how God describes himself in Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 8. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. So we know that Lewis had read the Psalms. He thought about how humans would often make much of themselves as he read these Psalms. And then why God was different. It was then that he came to the conclusion, you praise that which you find praiseworthy, and that which is beautiful, you continue to proclaim as beautiful. And the one that you love, you don't stop telling them you love them after the first time. And this is what he saw God doing concerning himself in the Psalms. It was the overflow of delight within himself that made these things happen, which brought about creation, and which is what we are shown over and again when we read the Psalms. So alongside of that, John Piper then read the overflow of delight that comes from the pen of Paul in Philippians. When Paul boldly proclaims, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.23, What Paul hints at there, he then fully explains later in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. He said this concerning Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let me ask you a question. As you look at your life, you look at all the things that you own in this life. 
all the abilities, the skills, the talents that you have in this life, you stack them up on one side and you put Christ on the other. Would you? Could you? Along with Paul, say the very same thing that he just said. Because that's what he actually meant. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And that is what Adam could never experience in his original perfect state. That righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Habakkuk 2.14 is a great place that sums up what that means as well. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the water covers the sea. That's how we should desire to see the glory of God. And do you recall what Hebrews 1.3 said concerning the one that walked in the cool of the day with Adam? That he is the radiance of the glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power? That was true when God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. But Adam could never have seen the true nature of God. He would have never known the full love of God even though he was created perfect, even though Adam is perfect, even though Eden was perfect, even though Eden was wonderfully lovely, it was not the fullness of the satisfaction of God as found in Christ Jesus, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. He is. And he he had to succeed where Adam failed, which he did. Again, listen to Paul as he makes much of that second Adam, who stood before the first Adam and commanded him, Obey me. Listen to Paul, who said, Life in Christ is better than all things in life. He said of Jesus in chapter 2, He told us why the why behind all creation. He said, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think about this, that Christ created all things. The six days of creation, he's standing before Adam. Have this mind, which was in Christ Jesus, when he created Adam perfect, and he told them, Obey me. Don't eat that fruit. Have this mind. And this way of thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, God loved Adam. And he loved all that are his with an eternal love, which is why we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And when Jesus walked with Adam in, in the cool of the day, when Adam basked in the glory of the creation and praised God for his majesty, Jesus at that time, he was there alongside of the Father and the Spirit. And they said within themselves, Adam, you are so right in praising me. You're right, Adam. Creation is glorious. It is magnificent. It is full of love. But wait. You haven't seen anything yet. But you, dear, you, are, you definitely will, dear one. You will. Dear made in my image, man, you will. I will demonstrate for all eternity my glory, the glory of my name. And we, when we see the Son, when we grasp the love of God as He has demonstrated to us, when we feel the love of God the Father in choosing us, the love of the Son in dying for us, the love of the Spirit in dwelling in us. When we do, we will do the same thing that Paul did. We will then boldly proclaim, and all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is outside of that? What is it that we have to fear? What more could Christ, could God have done to reveal his love for us? What more does he need to do to cause us to bring glory to him and loving adoration of him? And now we can understand the proclaiming of his name being equated with grace and compassion. You see, he grants grace and loving compassion on all those that he has chosen to be redeemed in his son. And to the rest, they're not treated unfairly. They receive the just reward for counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. They will never be the object of his love, his grace, or his compassion. But they will glorify God 
when every day of their lives they blaspheme his name as they live as if he is not Lord. And they will then glorify God when they suffer the just wrath of God for counting equality with him a thing to be grasped. And this is what we deserve. But God spoke creation into being. And he did so because he's a triune God who is overflowing with love and delight within himself. And so he spoke. And so he created. And in order to reveal the fullness of this glorious, wonderful, love-filled nature, he spoke man into existence. And he did that in order that he could through his Son, not grasping equality with the Father, and in love, because he is the exact representation of his nature, empty himself, becoming a human, becoming the second Adam, and thereby succeeding where Adam failed. That one, that one is the one that told Adam, don't count equality with me something to be grasped. Adam failed and he died. But Jesus stepped in front of him, picked him up, covered him in his righteousness, gave him his spirit, and then said, there you go, my son. Now, now you can grasp the fullness of my glory. The true reality of my faithfulness. And this is why we, the saints under the throne of God, that are told to us in Revelation 5, why, when the Lamb of God, who is worthy to take the scroll and break those seals, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who was standing as a lamb who had been slain, when he took that scroll, when he broke those seals, we, along with all the saints of heaven, shout to praise of his glory. We will say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people and, and nation and you made them to be a kingdom just as he did Adam and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth saints one day we will be back in that perfect creation that God spoke into existence we have the same authority that Adam had been given. We are now co-heirs to the kingdom of God. And now, because of that, we can see, we can grasp, we, we can taste and experience to a better degree the true nature of God that is found in the risen reigning king of kings than Adam ever could when he walked in the cool of the day. God loves, so he creates. God loves, 
so he saves. God loves, so he speaks. Dear ones, behold your God. Let's pray.